Perfect. Yanchen from uh, Remitter. Welcome to Bluemix Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, Ravi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, considering. I think we're on, what, week eight of quarantine now? I, I honestly thought, like, um, we're on week six, week seven, I'm not sure. And I went back and started counting. And it's, I think it's been eight weeks. <laughs> uh, I guess, yes. That's right. Is so I remember 13th is... of... 13th of March, our entire team um, went full remote, work from home. Mm -hmm. um, the 12th of March, I guess, or 11th was when WHO announced pandemic. And yes. the 13th of March, we decided to uh, go full remote. Right, um, about the same, actually. So I think Cordia in Ontario and Canada was launched on um, the 15th of March. So March 15th was supposed to be um, our previous episode, right? Sorry, our, we had five episodes lined up for uh, in our podcast at our physical location. And on Friday, uh, just like you, on the 13th, we started talking to our team. It's like, you know, this is, this is getting kind of serious, guys. Um, and we messaged our uh, guests and saying, you know, due to the COVID, COVID concerns, um, is anyone experiencing any symptoms? Out of five people that are supposed to come into a physical location, three were experiencing symptoms. And one of them just came back from Spain and we had shut down. And literally the day after, like um, that, we film uh, our podcast, like every, before this, every three weeks on a Sunday, right? So we have all the office set, uh, to ourselves and the podcast team, the, the production team comes in and the guests come in and we film like five at a time. And we had to shut that down. And then Monday, the quarantine was called and life just changed, right? So yeah. I, want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about how that has changed for you and uh, how Remitter and your company is, and your startup is functioning in this time where you know, now, now weeks have rolled by, almost two, we're in month two of lockdown yeah. and COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic. How have you guys adjusted? What are you guys dealing with? What is your new reality? Yeah, so adjustment is something which, is, which takes time. Um, first few days, goes by just like that you don't really feel yeah. much it's just like regular course working from home um but managing team keeping the team dynamics uh going keeping the same kind of bonding same kind of alignment uh, is something which takes time to build um, the good part of the advantage that we have had is because um we have always had distributed team uh, mm -hmm. just that people have been working from offices but in different cities and different countries and different time zones mm -hmm. so as a team we have been uh, pretty fine working over zoom collaborating over zoom and you know various collaboration tools however what we were not really uh, geared for that you live in the same city but you still don't um, see each other and that's something which has taken us time to understand uh, go through and realign our priorities. So it's not just that realigning the team, but also our priorities had to change. Um, we were massively preparing uh, for a launch in US market and the pandemic hit and we decided to pull back and said, this is not the time uh, to open a new market. And we must uh, you know, concentrate on what we have, consolidate and take this time to um, re-look at our priorities for next 
um, for the current quarter and the next quarter. We were still in yeah. uh, March at that point in time. And um, we had to huddle together. Each team had to figure out what our uh, you know, new roadmap looks like. And, and then everyone had to be uh, you know, aligned to the new uh, reality. Yeah. That is something which worked out pretty well for us. Um, I think as a team, everyone rallied together. Um, it does, it's unsettling when you have been working on a certain goal and a deadline that you want to meet and everyone is raring to go and suddenly you put a hard break on and say, hey, we are going to uh, you know, take a detour before you come back to this fast. Um, so it does take time. But it works pretty. It worked out pretty well for uh, us. So mm-hmm. what we did was, of course, we changed a lot of things internally uh, in terms of how we collaborate, how do we uh, work together, how do we still keep that team bonding going, given the fact that we have not really met each other uh, in past, like you said, eight weeks. We had not thought it's eight weeks yet, but yeah, it's actually eight weeks. I was also thinking six weeks, by the way. So, yeah, yeah, right. So it, it takes time. It takes time, but we have adjusted pretty well to this. Cool. Um, I really like the fact that you brought this up, right? The idea of team bonding and building during a time where we can't see each other physically. Um, not just even remote teams can't see each other physically. Everyone's working together, together yeah. in like a remote and virtual capacity. I mean, what does it look like for a company, right? Especially a startup that requires such immense bonding. Has that, do you guys have to now enforce the kind of cultural uh, culture within the company where you, everyone comes on and talks on Zoom together or like it's more informal conversations? Like so we you... do, yeah. So uh, we tried to keep some of the offline events that we had, we tried to bring it online. We created some new formats to how do we engage mm-hmm. with each other. Um, obviously we try and do as much as video calls as possible. Uh, so what, even if, for example, if I'm traveling and if, I need to collaborate with someone on the team. We must have, we would have done an audio call and we'd be okay with it, but now we try and do as much of video call as possible. Um, we started doing all hands weekly, every week, religiously, um, and uh, everyone is present there and we try and get to see everyone. Um, we do water cooler. Uh, so we have a fixed time for water cooler. Um, anyone can hop in, do, you know, talk about whatever is there. And we typically bump into people, it's just like we would bump into office, uh, which is not scheduled. You don't know what to talk there, but you, because you bumped in, so you really chat. Um, we had, um, you know, every Friday we would meet and we, we would chat about various things, everything except work. Um, obviously, over the, everyone's favorite drink, we made that mm-hmm. virtual now. So we do that um, every Friday still, just that it is virtual. And that's so much fun. Um, and, you know, so, so that's kind of a team bonding part of it and keeping everyone aligned. Um, we share frequently uh, weeks, wins and losses on our all hands. Um, that's something which is really uh, useful uh, because, you know, when you're in an office, you may be working in department A and someone is working in department B, but because you're working together in the same place, you would typically chat and you would know what's happening without having to put a structure to it. But it basically meant now that you had to put structure to that. 
to the extent that we have to reorganize our uh, Slack channel uh, to match with the new structure so that you know we could share more things which otherwise we would not have really shared because why? I mean, we're just sitting across, right? Why do you need to share that on mm -hmm. Slack? Why do you need to share with a larger uh, group when the time comes you would typically share? Um, so I think over communication is the key. Um, mm -hmm. We don't want to be really spammy and you know, uh, take each other's time, but uh, communicating as much as possible is very, very important. Uh, everyone has um, their own challenges, um, particularly team members who are also parents. Uh, they suddenly realize that schooling is more about daycare than about education. Yeah. And they have to adjust the time, should you? So, yeah, so we're learning. It's, it's fun to have someone's TV popping up on the uh, screen suddenly in the middle of a call and you're fine with it. It's fun. Yeah, it's definitely changed work environments. And I started, I started going, we are used, for, used, used to adapting, right? We're adaptable, we're lean, we run lean, and pivoting is, is, is part of the game, right? Um, I've been talking to a lot of like legacy companies, like larger corporate types. They're yeah. struggling. They, they, they yeah. can't implement that kind of culture. You know, their kid will come inside and they'll get one person where people get embarrassed. And like, you yeah. know, they, they don't have, they, you know, it throws them off that they're used to being a personal side to work and a, and a work side, right? You're having different dimensions, just like on social media networks, like you're different on Instagram versus you're different on LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn, yeah. People are used to, people are used to these different personas uh, within the work environment. And I think that's yeah. all blending together. Right? It's no longer work-life balance. It's about work-life integration, how it all sure. kind of works together. Yeah. And it's crazy that 1.3 billion people are all now experiencing this and experimenting on all together. Right? True. Absolutely. It is, and, and the yeah. best part is that uh, even um, functions which were originally considered, oh, this can only be done face-to-face, -face, have so naturally moved them to virtual um, without people really, you know, getting really discomfort about it. Um, as in, you know, if, if you if you look at a lot of functions which required face-to-face -face collaboration, doing oh, we are doing whiteboarding session. Obviously, that has to be face-to-face, -face, right? And how we have just adapted to it, as if it has always existed. The fact is technology is always existing, right? It was our resistance to change, which forced us to continue in the old world. And this has given us an opportunity to go out and explore all that is out there um, to, and to bring things um, digital and you know, let us collaborate virtually without really losing productivity. Yeah, I, what do you, how do you feel about this environment, right? As like a forward, like a, a going moving forward, let's say lockdown is lifted, right? Cause you know, the, the like habit forming, if you're doing something consistently for about six weeks, it turns into a habit and it's yeah. really hard to break. And one of the part of things of lockdown, part of the anxieties and the stress is that the old habits were broken. They were forced to adapt and, 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 and uh, revert. Not most people, majority of people are not used to that at all. Yeah. But now that you know, six, seven, eight weeks have gone by, we kind of gotten used to this. These yeah. Zoom calls, working from home, 
you know, having integrated work and life, you know, you know, doing some work, jumping off a call, going and doing lunch and giving to, giving to your family members and you know, jumping back into it. Like all this balancing act. And companies are looking at things that's like, why was I paying, you know, $10,000, $30,000 a month in, in, in real estate, right? Yeah. And office expenses and, and housing people when we act just as functionally now, right? How, would, how do you find yourself as an effectivity tool? Like, would you um, go back to how things were? Would you want to go for a blend, like working within a co-working space or that, that's like people can come in and go freely? Um, what do you think about the future of work? What are we learning? Very interesting point. Um, I see three distinct ways in which this would work. One, we would certainly have startups uh, adopting more or being amenable to more remote working or distributed teams. Um, I've seen that pretty often in startup world that, oh, we are so early stage that we have to be in the room together to be able to move at breakneck speed. Mm. Um, that is something which is going to change and more and more startups are going to say, distributed teams are fine and they could still move at, you know, semi breakneck speed and that will be fine world will not come to end if we don't move at that speed, right? So that's one um, change which I certainly see is adoption of more distributed teams. The second which I see is blended um, workforce. I mean, I don't know how we are going to decide. We would certainly let our team figure out what's the best way that we are comfortable with. But I I really don't see us going back to the old environment that everyone every day goes to work, otherwise they feel I'm not doing uh, full justice to what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Um, I don't see that happening. I, I certainly see that a lot more people will blend it. Hot testing will become important. So if you possibly had 20 tests, you would possibly downsize make it five, seven, ten desk environment where people will come and go and utilize that uh, desk. That's what I see becoming uh, more prevalent. And third is for um, larger organizations, which have been kind of forced into this situation um, of remote work. I know a whole lot of organizations which run contact centers, right? they were not ready for people working remotely. They had data privacy issues, security issues, um, background noise, all of that. They're gonna be still, at least so far that I've spoken to, they still think it's a phase which we pass and they will be able to get everyone back in the uh, you know room to work together. They are in for a root shock uh, because even with the lockdown lift, the social distancing isn't really going away for a long time, yeah. right? And if that is not going away for a long time, you cannot really have people sitting next to each other, uh, you know, bumping into each other in the hallway. And if that's the case, then very certainly you also are forced to do blended uh, work environment uh, between remote and um, physical. But I still see larger organizations struggling with that, but that's what the reality is going to be. Yeah, and I think that's, you nailed it there in the sense that even though things are lifted, it's not going to go back to normal, right? Yeah. 
uh, I think a lot of people, especially at the beginning, were like thinking about talking about, oh, when's when are we going back to normal? When are things going back to normal? I think it's coming dawning on us that normal is is changed, it's shifted. Yeah. Right. Even if things are like lifted and uh, you know we find a vaccine for COVID tomorrow and and go, things are still the, the social principles are now caked into ourselves. It's it's now it's now caked into our culture identity. Right. The idea of distancing, yeah. not going out as much. Uh, people are still have that sense of fear. And again, the habit of not seeing as much people anymore, physically seeing. And everyone's online is saying that, you know, when things are open, people are flood out into the streets and, you know, there's going to be parties and they're going to do that. I don't think that's the case. I think people are still very much scared. People are worried. People think about the future for themselves, for their families, and for, for each other, right? For society in general. And I think even with all this, like, it opens up a great bunch of opportunities. Because like, like I alluded to before, 1.3 billion people in industrialized nations who have access to high-tech devices like this are now connected. Uh, and yeah. they're all dealing with the same problem, right? Language barriers is not so much, not too much an issue when, um, you know, you have translating tools, but also, you know, you can have face-to-face -face interaction instantly. The boundaries of, of space have gotten drifted away. What I'm interested in is like, how are the new structures that form from this, the people who figure it out, New ways to run companies, new ways to hire and maintain staff, new ways to do sales, new ways to uh, build a product, right? Becomes more distributed yeah. and, and operate like that. And if we can, and, and, and I feel like this situation has really heralded the, the future of work and the fourth industrial revolution, you know, yeah. like e-commerce, for instance, they were experiencing a steady growth of 1% a year, right? The entire industry which is phenomenal growth for, for, the, for the numbers behind it. But in the, in the last three months, they have grown, the entire e-commerce industry has grown at 1% a month. That's yeah. three years worth of growth they've experienced. So a market, certain markets are exploding and it's radically shifting how we do uh, commerce, how we do uh, sales, how we, how we operate. And this is one of my main interests in having you from Remitter on, on how you guys play the payment space in this kind of environment where Things have drastically shifted. We're still dealing with archaic like banking processes that are like decades old, that have been slowing down business uh, in the virtual space. How is that being transformed? Um, very interesting point. Uh, to be honest, if you had given this scenario to me in January and said, if this happens, how this will prove, um, I wouldn't have been able to give an answer which would have proven right at this point in time. Um, even when pandemic started uh, to show off their face, so it was not called pandemic. Um, I was in, um, I remember I was in Bay Area, uh, San Francisco, and uh, people had already started practicing social distancing. I was, you know, offices would have notices that said, please do not take offense. We, we are not shaking hands, uh, you know, and please use, um, you know, wash your hands and uh, sanitizers all around. Even at that point in time, it felt as this is a short phase and go away. It felt that it's going to impact our business badly because we could see how uh, the supply chain was getting impacted. Um, and yes, we did see the payments volume to certain countries go down. Um, we have a very interesting graph which shows China 
obviously because supply chain is a lot dependent on china for most countries so payments going to china is a large part of uh, payment volume that we process right we would see china would keep going up end of january china started going down february it was 75% of the typical volume first week of march it was almost 90% down it was yes. 10% it was a trickle and we had to uh, prep ourselves for a downturn in our business around mid march we started getting a lot many customers coming online what really happened was that while we've always been talking about how we are the best alternative for online banking today because most banks as you said are very archaic processes uh, legacy systems you still have to go and visit branches to do a lot of things or call up people and banks started uh, having trouble because they had to curtail branches curtail banking hours uh, online support was uh, taking a much longer and our customer acquisitions uh, shot up without actually we having to do a lot work a lot of extra work for this and um, we saw customers flowing through our door as a floodgate has opened we had to get back at improving our processes so that we can cut down the time that it takes for us to onboard customers we had to completely reprioritize uh, our processes we had to retool things uh, so that we could cut down time bring in more efficiency we couldn't really go ahead and hire more people just because we got more customers right that's not our business model um, so we had to bring in a lot more efficiency a lot more automation to deal with this and while the customer acquisition is uh, you know really graph went up like this and if you see that typically it's a mid march when the numbers are shot up drastically it's a literal uh, you know hockey stick that you talked about that hockey stick did yeah. we anticipate it no we did not anticipate it right and then because we have really are processing payments of supply chain beat for services beat for goods and we have seen how the volume went down to zero and how some other country replaced china as a source where people had to find new suppliers because like you said e-commerce is booming demand has not gone down for uh, things right mm -hmm. but supply has gone down so the the business there had to quickly go and find new uh, supplier elsewhere so possibly they couldn't get in china but they had some warehouse and or some supplier in us which is which has got the stock so they want to get paid, uh, send payment there and secure that supply and we were the mechanism because we guarantee next business day payment reaches uh, to your supplier and people were looking at uh, coming and saying hey i need to secure the supply do you guarantee the payment will reach tomorrow and we could say yes payment will reach tomorrow that created a completely new opportunity for us in the sense that the appreciation for what we bring to the table was a lot more than what it was before pandemic hit it's like same thing if you talk about zoom zoom has existed people said oh yeah it's a great tool right but how many people really used it uh, to the extent that's being used today because people suddenly realize oh this is god sent we must use it now and that's what really happened with us uh, as well yeah so you're one of the 
the few companies in the space where growth has exploded because of the shift in the market. And now you're like trying to secure that, secure that holding within, uh, within the growth, right? You're trying to hold yeah. on to that growth. I mean, one of the, the worst kind of failures a startup can, can failures, quote unquote, a startup can experience is like, is failing in growth. Because yeah. you can build so quickly or like try to navigate, try to onboard things so quickly and grow so quickly that you can build all these processes and build all these things underneath you that are toxic and can hurt you yeah. long-term yeah. and can come back. Yeah. And then have to coming, coming back and fix that is hard. And this is like the catch 22 that we're facing is that cool. There's a whole bunch of work. There's a whole bunch of new markets that are opened up and there's a bunch of work to do. But if we move too quickly, without thinking of being strategic, we can set ourselves up for failure. Yeah. As, as CEO, how is that, how's your mindset been during this time of having to navigate through this and being there for people and the changes being in effect? Very good question. Um, I have seen, um, thankfully, this is my third company, uh, okay. which basically means I have made a lot of such mistakes in past, which I do not want to repeat it now, right? Um, so one of the things that we really do is that we, instead of trying to build something uh, mega product or a huge launch, uh, we try and do things incrementally, release as quickly as possible, see what is the impact. Uh, come back and rebuild it. Just to give you a very simple example, almost overnight, a customer came and said, hey, we had a service provider uh, which is not performing as good as we, we would want them to, and uh, they need to send payments uh, to a large number of um, healthcare workers every day after their shift ends. Uh, can we use your API to do that? And they said, yeah please go ahead and do that. And we have a simple feature which says, hey, give us the email ID, phone number, they get a secure link where they can give their bank account detail and uh, they, they get paid. They get a payment in their account the same day evening. And that was used, but not to the extent which uh, this customer was scaling up with. Uh, because as you know, the healthcare uh, demand for healthcare work has gone up. So that had to scale. And we had to ensure that it's very intuitive. It wasn't as great. Now, we quickly worked out what the best case scenario should be. Here is what should ideally be to take care of all the uh, challenges that we see right now on this uh, simple looking interface. But do we wait for seven days to deliver that? Which is ideal thing to do, but then the customer is going to suffer. We have to take an intermediate approach. So we say, this is what will be, instead of on day seven, this is going to be on day 10. But some element of this, we are going to improve on the current uh, product that we have. And we have to iterate through that. That iteration ensured that customers did not suffer. At the same point in time, we did not sit on that bandit that we had created just to fix for that day. We said, no, this is going to get replaced. Seven so days down the line, that new, uh, thing was up. So it's very important to have the mix of or the right balance of agility versus sustainability of that solution. Otherwise, like you said, we create technical debt which comes back to bite us over a period of time. It would have been very easy to go fix that and say, hey, this is working, let's go and move on and do something else. 
but we decided not to do that. And there are tons of such examples, like I said, you know, when we onboard customers, there were a lot of things that we needed to do to ensure that we could handle the volume without really increasing uh, manpower. So that mixes, that balance is extremely important. That's interesting. Can we, can you talk a little bit more from your words? What, what Remitter is, what did you do, and has that changed due to everything? Yeah, so Remitter is a uh, replacement for the payment services which your bank provides, which is your EFT, wire transfer, check payment. Uh, we make that completely online, seamless, and predictable experience which basically means that if you were, uh, you sign up with Remitter, you would be able to send payments to your supplier, staff, contractor within Canada or anywhere in the world. We guarantee next business day, the payment reaches the recipient's bank account. We guarantee um, they get the exact amount of payment which uh, you're supposed to send. There is no deduction which happens over a period of time or, or, or over the pipe as it happens in case of wire transfer. And we ensure that it's highly cost-effective. Um, this is exactly what we provided earlier. This is exactly what we provide even now. To make that easy and collaborative, what we did was that we integrated with Zero QuickBooks so that you know if you have a supplier invoice there, one tap, it shows up the invoice, this is due, one tap. We go debit your bank account, we go credit the bank account of the um, supplier wherever in the world they are. We make that data available to your bookkeeper so that they have access to your account and they can do all reconciliations all by themselves. But we also realized that this was a time when we had to step up and that's what we did. So during the entire month of um, April, we just made it free of charge to do all transactions. So all our customers, they paid nothing uh, during that period because that was a peak period when everyone was really suffering, everyone shuttering down. Uh, most of the relief which was being provided by the government had still not hit the bank account of the businesses. So we just made that free. That's the only change that we really made. Our uh, product remains the same, just that we have created a capability to handle hundreds of customers, new customers joining in every day. Now, I like that. So you say you guarantee payments next day payments? Next day? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's extremely difficult, right? Like only a few few payment companies can do that currently. Um, now, which regions is that available in? Um, you can send next day payment to US, you can send next day payment to Europe, UK, a large part of Asia as well. Um, we have spent time building a payment network, which is proprietary, with, where we have our own direct relationship in each of these countries that we cover. And uh, if you're sending, for example, payment to US, to your supplier in US, we guarantee next business day payment reaches. If you're sending it to someone in Asia or Europe, next business payment reaches. And that's because we don't use a traditional banking channel. We just created a parallel network of payments. Sorry, what was the last part? We just created a parallel payment network. Can we, can we talk a little bit more about that? Like, what, does that what does that look like? What does that mean? That, yeah, that's a complex piece. It basically means, one, um, to do something like this, we are regulated here in Canada um, because we touch the money, which basically means we have the same kind of regulatory obligations that banks have in terms of identifying our customers, collecting all the documents, anti-money laundering checks, various other compliances. Then on the, uh, we integrate with banks here so that we can go and pull money out of anyone's bank account here as long as they give us authorization to do that. 
build fraud protection so that you know various frauds which you see here in terms of identity theft and account takeover we mitigate against that then we partner with uh, banks in right now we're 75 countries in the world where you partner banks where we ensure their money reaches the next business day and that we do that by building uh, relationship with them where we uh, you know have api integrations uh, there's a way in which the money would move there so that uh, they would be able to without asking 10 questions they would directly say okay if it is coming from you tell me which account to uh, credit and we do the credit in that account using local payment rails so which is how we bypass the uh, wire transfer system completely so it is almost as if you were in Europe and you're sending payment to someone in Europe. You are in US sending payment to someone in uh, US. You are in India sending payment to India. You're in Singapore payment, uh, sending payment to someone in Singapore. You just make it very, very local payment transfers wherever uh, your supplier is. So how is this? So I, mean, I, I understand this and it's a dumb question, but how is this different from, what's, from like a strike of the world? Or like Google Payments or any legacy systems, right? What's preventing the, them to do stuff like you're doing? What? So there are two parts of payments business. One part of payment business is collecting payments from supplier and bringing it to uh, from customers and bringing it to the supplier's bank account, right? Um, for example, you are a SaaS company. You put a payment gateway link where someone can pay you by credit card. That's what Stripe does uh, for you, right? We do the opposite side of it. So you collected payment from your customer. Now you've got to pay to suppliers. Now your supplier is not accepting payment through credit card because usually that's a larger value of payment, right? Um, how do you make, uh, make payment to them? You would go to your bank and do a wire transfer uh, to them or the suppliers in Canada, you would possibly do an e-transfer to them. E-transfer has let's say $3,000 limit. Um, wire transfer, you can't really do small value wire transfer and it takes five days to reach and it, you have to pay $25 to send and the recipient is going to pay you know, another $20 to receive. We cut all that out. So what Stripe does is bringing money from your customer uh, using their credit card or um, debit card uh, into your bank account. We help you make that payment to your uh, suppliers, contractors worldwide. So we are doing what Stripe does on the accounts receivable side is what we do on the accounts payable side. Okay, gotcha. So that's a, you're saying that's a two different market, like there's two different yeah. uh, different players in that. Like right. uh, what is, so I guess most people are more more used to the Stripe side of things, right? You know, you put my credit card information, you put my information to pay, make payments, all that is paid out. Yeah. It, systematically, is there, system, is there big systematic changes from the front end of that to the back end, I guess? Can you can we call it that front end, like that being the front end kind of uh, piece of payments using the back end of business operate? It does very different. So, for example, when you do credit card acceptance, um, it's a Visa and Master which is processing the payment and ensuring that you know card could be issued by a, a JP Morgan Chase in US and the supplier is in uh, BMO Bank of Montreal and. Uh, you know, Stripe is collecting payment from the card and the settlement between Chase and BMO Bank of Montreal happens, right? Stripe does not do that settlement part of it. That's Visa and Master does it. Um, as far as we are concerned, because there is no such network exists, so we had to create that network uh, where we link those bank accounts and we do that uh, settlement uh, between the various bank accounts. So that's a completely different 
way of moving money than what uh, the accounts receivable of payment gateways or acquirers uh, they do it. And I guess what's, what prevents the market from, from coalescing, right? Like why can't the same payment methodologies be used for the consumer side of between credit cards and debit purchases to more of the business operation side or between these, between companies? What, why are, you know, why is it so complicated? So very simple. If you look at it, uh, if you're a merchant and if you receive payments through credit card, uh, you would typically pay three uh, percent to receive that payment, right? Um, now three percent on a five hundred dollar transaction, thousand dollar transaction is still okay to pay, right? But just imagine if you raised an invoice for ten thousand dollar or five thousand dollar and you have to pay three percent. That's a large part of money which is going away from your um, profit typically, right? And which is the reason why that kind of payment is not done uh, using credit or debit trails. Now, what do you do then? You send an invoice uh, to the supply, uh, to your customer and say, hey, this is my bank detail, please send payment to me, right? So now the onus is on uh, your customer to push payment to you rather than in the first case where uh, supplier is using Stripe or any other such payment gateway is pulling money from a card, which now is a responsibility of your customer to settle with, right? Mm. So customer pays for credit card and you settle with your credit card. I got my money, right? Now, because the cost is important, the second part of the cost is when you do foreign currency transaction. Um, you raise an invoice on someone in uh, Europe, right? And you try and accept credit card payment. Besides 3% that you would pay on card acceptance fee, another two and a half, three percent 3% is what would be paid either by you or by the supplier in foreign currency conversion fee. And plus the conversion rate is going to be bad because there's no transparency on that, right? So you would end up paying almost 7% on that transaction if it is a foreign currency transaction. Now, which is the reason why you need more efficient way of moving money, which is bank-to-bank -bank transaction. Something as simple as doing an e-transfer. How did anyone pay any money for that, right? That's what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a very clear explanation. Thank you for that. That was, that was great. Um, I kind of understand a little bit better now what, what, what's going on. Because I have, I have a, like, a surprising lack of knowledge uh, when it comes to the payment space. And I've only re recently discovered this by talking to companies like yourself on the complications in this. Because from the outside of looking in, you know, you're just used to, I need money, I get, you know, it just, it just comes. Right? My employer sends it to yeah. me, my paychecks, you know, I put my credit card information into, into, into the thing, it just works. Right? Like what's, what's the complexity here? Why can't it work easier? Then like, then like we had like in 2018, 2017, 18, like the whole uh, decentralized movement really picked up, such as crypto fueled by the crypto mining community. And we start seeing, oh, this is a whole new system is gonna be built. Now the legacy system is gonna be demolished and now it's gonna be all decentralized, power to the people, right? Um, and that kind of movement kind of fizzled out almost, yeah. right? Um, do you see any kind of blends or any kind of, I guess, usage of the decentralized systems or decentralized uh, not cryptocurrency but blockchain technologies how is that being implemented here or is the implementation in the space um 
So clearly decentralization is something which will come. Uh, just that it'll take more time to come. Mm -hmm. uh, cryptocurrencies in the current form isn't really viable. Uh, but I'll just give you another analogy. If you look at any political system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have established political system and then you have a completely fringe system, right? What does fringe system do? Does that fringe ever become mainstream? World history shows it does not. And even if it does, it remains for a very, very short period of time. But what it really does is it puts a lot of pressure on the legacy political mm. system to reform, right? And then it comes somewhere midway, right? And we find a middle path. Yeah. That's what world is to teach us. Currencies are no different. Economies are no different, right? It has, we have seen again, be it extreme left or extreme right, never works. It just puts pressure on the other side to take two steps towards the center, the other one takes two steps towards the center, and we somewhere meet in between, either left of center or right of center. That's what is going to happen with uh, currencies as well. Cryptocurrencies, when they came in, they said, uproot this world, change everything overnight. We don't want the system. Yes, there are flaws. What it really did was it really put pressure on legacy payment systems, right? Uh, Federal Reserve, um, you know, the economists sitting in position of authority to take note and say, hey, what they're saying, the way they're saying could be wrong, but what they're saying is not wrong, right? That acceptance took time to come, but it happened, right? And which is why you see the movement towards, uh, you know, reform in the way money movement happens, uh, started coming in. And you have seen various different countries now starting with their own experiments. Um, Canada has done experiments on blockchain. Um, China has heard that they're doing some experiments around digital currency. For a long time, if you look at it, currency has been digital. When you use cards, we don't really use uh, the currency notes, right? We don't really use, um, when we send payment, money is actually physically not moving. It has remained digital for a long time. It's yeah, the way money is managed. Checks. Exactly, right? The way money is managed has not changed over a period of time. And this is what is forcing it. Uh, the entire cryptocurrency movement is putting pressure on this to be reformed. And which is why we see, um, I would still call it a middle path. It's still uh, experimental stage, but a lot more acceptance has come in for things like stable coins, right? Because that basically means that governments don't lose control. Mind you, currency is something which is very tightly integrated with the notion of sovereignty. It's about, the, it's almost like being a flag, right? This is my currency, it's like, this is my flag. Expecting the governments to disown currencies and replace them with a global currency is like saying, I'm going to open my borders and I'm going to burn my flag and I'll become one word. That's not happening anytime soon, right? So we are not going to see single currency ruling the entire world because most governments would want that control because that's how they manage economies. It will become more transparent. It will put pressure on them to reform the way economy uh, is managed and it will make it easy for companies like us 
to come and play a role in the transformation that is happening and provide a way for shift from the traditional ways to whatever the future uh, looks like. Mm-hmm. That was one, that's a really good assessment. I really like the idea that the blockchain movement put pressure on the legacy systems and, and it's the back and forth, it's what's really revolutionizing um, and uh, driving forth innovation. And I mean, the whole point of capitalism is that it's supposed to be a competitive market, right? Competition what drives growth and innovation. And I mean, I think the frustration with most people is that the lack of change in the legacy system in the current financial sector is because been almost monopolies, right? Like all these companies are so big, the banks are too big to fail, that like they're just operating and they continue to operate through inefficiencies that there's no involvement on it. And now that we're seeing this rapid kind of growth, I guess people are kind of more excited to see where would that, where that step shear, where does that go towards? So I guess we'll end with this. Um, what is, from the payment side and, and from your point of view, what does the ideal world look like? What is the, what is the solution uh, from the remitter side look like, idealized? Um, ideal world is invisible real-time payments. It should be as simple as I go to your portal and say, hey, ship me this. Uh, product, it could be coming from anywhere in the China. I go to supplier, send them a purchase order. Supplier should get paid exactly the same way without having to make an effort, which is invisible, which does not become a chore. It does not require additional effort to make uh, a payment. And it is fast, real time. Today, it's faster for goods to arrive from another country than for the payment to reach there. That's not the ideal world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, money is digital. Money should reach the way email reaches. We have a long way to go, but that's where we are headed. Invisible real-time payments. And that's mm-hmm. how global commerce will really become global. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. That's a great sentiment to end on. And Yanchen, thank you for your time. Thank you for being on here. Um, uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.